Welcome to Season 1, Episode 10 of the Bun Me Chronicles Podcast. This is your host, Randy Kim. I got to chat with good friend Brandon Lee, who I've known since 2012 through his work as a community organizer with Asian Americans Advancing Justice in the Chicago Uptown neighborhood. Brandon grew up and spent his life in Uptown and has spent much of his time over the years advocating for Asian American rights and other progressive causes in this community. Earlier this fall, Brandon left Advancing Justice to go on hiatus. He spent his time reflecting back on the everyday challenges of community organizing. We also discussed the recent controversial layoffs of the Advancing Justice staff in LA and the effect it could have on the API community there. Despite stepping away from the community organizing space, Brandon continues to provide guidance and support to his community. I couldn't be more thankful to him for stopping by to share his experience, and I hope that hearing his story will inspire others to become effective leaders and participants for their community. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Brandy Kim from the Bun Me Chronicles podcast. I am here with my good friend, uh, Brandon Lee. So, Brandon, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And uh, Brandon, how are you today? I'm okay, Randy. I'm okay. How, uh, the, the weather has taken a turn for the worse here in Chicago, but it happens every year. So that's okay. Yeah, clearly, because uh, um, today... Uh, it is October 30th, and there is snow on the ground. It's not just a sprinkle. There's actually legit snow on the ground, and I can tell by the looks of it, uh, talking to you, that you are covering yourself with a coat. Is that yeah. correct? Well, I, I pulled my coat out of storage today to wear it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I've got it covered over me right now to give my mic a slightly better sound than I otherwise would have with this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, it's but it's it's coming in very good use right now. Yeah. Prior to this, uh, Brandon had an adventure for like the last ten minutes trying to get connected uh, with his mic, and then as things looked like it was turning for the better, I started having electrical electrical issues in my house, like literally like right as i was about i think like literally as you were about to talk into the mic and i'm like great this is now it's me so so yeah today's been kind of a day um to say the least i think mercury retrograde is now in session oh wow yeah well it's scorpio season to anybody who uh follows astrology if you're a gemini it's not your time of season so are you, are um, you styling are you stylizing that as scn oh what is it s it, it's S-C-N. Scorpio season scn oh, yes yes i mean i like to prefer the regular way but <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow um so moving right along uh brandon i was wondering if you could uh introduce yourself uh my name is brandon lee i uh well, here's, so I was thinking about, uh, the other day I, I was thinking about uh, how to introduce myself in public settings. And you know how um, a lot of times uh, 
there there's a very common icebreaker question which is like give, give us your name and your job or your school yep. and one random fact about yourself right and the definition of random is i mean it depends it depends on your your setting of course but i nothing is truly random right it's always like um a lot of times you'll think of like the most recent exciting or funny thing that happened or you'll default do you want me, to, you want me to ask you that icebreaker question <laughs> no no, no. <laughs> my what basically what i was what i was getting at is that uh one one of the things i thought of the last time i was asked that is to have a few items af like on hand right to to say oh this is I'm Brandon. I'm from Chicago. I went to University of Illinois, Chicago. I live in uptown and blank. And it's it's the blank part that's that's uh, a little complicated. And you think, oh man, what's the definition of interesting? Oh, what's the definition of random? Anyway, uh, today, um, let's go with this. I uh, I'm. I'm coming off of six years working at, or I'm sorry, I'm coming off of six and a half non-consecutive years working at Asian Americans Advancing Justice. So that was my most recent job. Um, I have lived in uptown Chicago for my whole life. My grandparents were part of the Japanese American internment experience. My favorite color is blue. I most, I, uh, as of last week, I was published by the Society for American Baseball Research, and um, and uh, I, I would like to. Uh, and after this, I would like to go to Dairy Queen and get a, a dreamsicle coated ice cream cone. No, I do live by a DQ. Now that you brought it up, I also live by DQ, Baskin Robbins, and Overweiss, like within a half mile radius. I mean, I know Overweiss is problematic. I know Overweiss is problematic AF. And when I used to live in Niles, there used to be all these bubble tea places near me, and there's no bubble tea places that are within my vicinity at the moment. Um, when I say at the moment hoping to the universe that it comes near me soon enough because those three ice cream places are just my options and i'm not exactly like that enamored having um ice cream at this time of year but i need a good bubble tea but anyways um but yeah See, i believe i believe that ice cream is a 12 month a year food um, it can I, be it can yeah. be yes yeah it can be uh yeah oh thank you so much for you know at least uh you know sharing and getting the ball rolling here so i know so brandon and i have uh go back i'd say since 2012 and it was actually through your wife uh, carla who i used to work with uh, when we were at the korean american resource and cultural center which is now the hana center and and i also knew you through your work with Asians American Advancing Justice, which you had uh, recently uh, left that position or left the organization. Uh, and and right now you are taking a well-needed break. And how has that hiatus been for you so far? You know, I think a, a really important part of taking a sabbatical 
uh, is knowing what you're going to do in the sabbatical. And I think I, I think if I, if, uh, I'm sitting here a little more than a month into it, and if I have a reflection on it, it's that I, I actually tried to do too much. Like, it's, it's where I'm, I'm trying to find a job and trying to kind of reflect on my old job and trying to rest and trying to, um, you know, maintain uh, professional and personal connections with people and doing all these things at the same time is uh, tiring and and it can be exhausting. And uh, Carla, who you used to work with, is now a classroom teacher and she spent the last couple of weeks on starting with the Chicago Teachers Union. Oh. So uh, I've been doing so I've been doing what I can to support her in this time and to support the strike. Um, and uh, you know it it hasn't quite been as restful as I would have liked. But uh, that's okay because uh, the the thing is, you until you have something at the other end of this, you can kind of plan as you go, and I can plan in some rest. Yeah, I mean, I know that sometimes things don't always go as planned, but at the same time, there are opportunities that you are um, seeking out, and sometimes they just come at you. Um, in random moments and um, I know like being in the nonprofit sector um, that you've also been a part of and I've been a part of at one point uh, in my professional career you're wearing so many different hats and the idea of rust working in nonprofit especially in movements that uh, reflect highly on today's political uh, social climate that we're in when things are constantly in danger on a national level and also locally. I mean, you have issues stemming from, um, well, from the Asian American communities, you know, we deal with deportation issues, we deal with immigration um, concerns, we deal with uh, healthcare, uh, language access, um, education, uh, and, and the, you know, most recently you're dealing with the Chicago teacher strike. So these issues are, you know, t um, these are issues that you can't, that one can't take rest on, right? Everything is so urgent. Everything's so immediate that, you know, you could be on vacation, but, you know, next thing you know, there's like this emergency meeting, right? Saying, or a text message from an ED that says, hey, just let you know, there's, um, there is a policy that's going to take place that we need to speak up on uh, immediately that we need to go to City Hall. Um, so, you know, with that said, you know, reflecting back on your time with Asians American Advancing Justice in um, the Chicago office, what has that been like to carry on these different hats and knowing that every day seems to be a different adventure in of itself, especially when you have all these um, policies and movements and you know uh, tragedies that have happened that call for the community to come together and how do you and the staff work through these episodes if that's what I if that's only, that, I can't even think of another word besides episode but yeah but I was wondering if you kind of see where I'm going at yeah totally I think all of it is in there, there, I think hearing you go through the list of issues, it 
it goes to illustrate that there's no there's no lack of important matters at hand right now and that there are uh, crises happening every single day in every single community and I think the reality the reality of working for a community-based organization that oftentimes does respond to these moments is that you know it's almost like you have to be realistic of you have you have to grasp how how to best use your time, you know, and the best things to, and where you can be the most impactful, not the best things to respond to, but where you can be the most impactful with your response. And a lot of times it comes down to, you know, where can we mobilize our people right now? How can we best respond to this issue in a way that is going to resonate with our audience and with our base, right? It's it's not always a matter of responding to everything. It's often a matter of responding to um, uh, of of responding to our responding to your base and your constituency when it's a matter that directly affects your community, and also it's a matter of responding in such a way when it's something that's happening outside of your community to uh, to galvanize them to, or to galvanize your own community in order to move them along on this uh, spectrum of organizing and spectrum of justice, you know? Uh, and, you know, I saw that a lot in in my early time with advancing justice around issues of, of police brutality. You know, a lot of, th- a lot of times, you know, Asian, Asian American communities kind of, I, I use that in a much more broader sense rather than rather than a narrow sense. I, I think it's a it's an issue that might come come to the forefront when it when an Asian American community member is the one who is the victim of of police brutality. And that's a that's something that we saw happen in Chicago uh, back in uh, back in 2014, and uh, with I'll, I'll say your name. It's Jessica Kleichek. If if you yes. want if you want to go and look that up, I I think the uh, you know galvanizing the it was a galvanizing moment for the Asian American community to come out and say yes, we do have a stake in. Uh, in the issue of police brutality. Beyond that, I would say that, you know, for us at Advancing Justice and for me as an Asian American, Japanese American community member, it has been, it, it was a galvanizing moment for me as well to, to, to want to play a bigger part in, in issues surrounding police accountability, and and as I kind of grew in my knowledge and relationships and analysis, you know, uh, wanting to be a part of of uh, of campaigns that that kind of get to root causes and to talk more about abolition and talk more about reparations, like it's. It's. I, I think of myself as as kind of a case study of moving along on the spectrum, and it all started with with a small 
moment. You know, it all started with one instance that that galvanized me to take action with my community, and it. And from that moment, I've I've grown to realize this movement as something much bigger. And uh, for me, right now, I'm, you know, part of it for me is trying to figure out the role that I'm playing in that moving forward and continuing to play in that as someone who's not affiliated with the community organization right now. Mm. Yeah, I mean, thank you for, so much for reflecting on on these uh, experiences that you've uh, shared you know, through your time with Advancing Justice. So going back maybe even further, what got you inspired uh, into uh, grassroots organizing, and did your grandparents um, being incarcerated during the Japanese concentration, Japanese American concentration camps during the World War II era, did that also lead you into that path? You know, I don't think the incarceration and the concentration camp experience led me into organizing right away. You know, I always identified growing up as Japanese American. I I definitely feel as though the internment and concentration camp experience was always core to my being. Like it, it was very much a part of my relationship with my grandmother, my grandmother's relationship with my mom and her brother and sisters. I think, and, and also my relationship with, you know, my my church community, which is mostly Jap which was mostly Japanese American at the time, and my my grandmother's friend group who were also Japanese Americans who had survived the incarceration. So it was very core to my being and it's something that I saw so much of growing up. I it didn't really become central to my organizing and kind of political analysis until college, I would say, when I first took Asian American studies courses at University of Illinois Chicago, and that is where I could see my family's incarceration experience alongside the experiences of other Asian American communities and start then to claim Asian American as my own political identity, right? Because Asian American is a political identity, and it's not something that I claimed until I got that perspective that sort of community-wide perspective, right? And and that's not something I got until I entered that academic space. So it was there that I, I got the Asian American analysis and identity for myself. And it's that's actually what connected me to, uh, to Asian American Institute, which is now Asian Americans Advancing Justice Chicago for the first time. And, and um, in terms of my community involvement, community volunteerism, it, it started through my college experience with Asian American studies. Mm. So the last several years that you've been with Advancing Justice, uh, you've been involved in different several API movements, both locally in Chicago that you've mentioned, but also across the US. Uh, what would you say are the differences in the needs of the API community in Chicago versus in other API communities in the US? I think, you know, I think, I think a lot of, there are a lot of needs that, that overlap, right? Like 
language is an issue for Asian American communities across across the nation. Uh, I would say that um, you know access to access to voting and translated materials is is of course a huge issue. Um, I would say that lack of <clears throat> the lack of uh, accurate disaggregated data that that shows how really bimodal our community is that you know these, these are issues for Asian Americans across the country and, and you see it as well in Chicago. I, I think that here one of the things that I that I saw on the, the kind of organizing and political movement level is this, this sort of bringing along of our community and bringing along of Asian Americans to really build these coalitions across, um, across, uh, across communities of color, build with black communities, build with Latinx communities, acknowledge the presence of undocumented community members within the Asian American community and then build community up from there with other folks who are undocumented. I, I think that like that has been sort of the challenge and, and what I, I dedicated a lot of my time to doing at Advancing Justice and part of what I view, uh, what I view as advance, a big role for Advancing Justice in kind of the Chicago organizing landscape. And I think that when I, when I look at communities elsewhere, um, whether they're coastal or whether they're even in, in places like the Twin Cities or in Madison, I, a lot of times I, I think of some of those Asian American communities as being maybe a little further along in that, in that sort of coalition building. Uh, whereas, you know, Chicago's deep history of, of segregation and kind of uh, the, the way Asian Americans are used as, as a wedge, um, not only nationally, but you, you see it very clearly in Chicago around um, some very localized campaigns. But I, I think kind of bringing our community along beyond being that wedge and moving towards solidarity and, and towards co-struggling, like that is, that I think is something that Chicago is playing some catch up on uh, community-wide. And that's not to say there's not a lot of good work happening in that front right now, because there absolutely is. So it's it's both an inspiring time and and also a, a situation where kind of like, oh man, like, why aren't we further along? It's both. Yeah, no, I think you bring up a really good point because as you're bringing this up, one of the questions that come to mind is in the API uh, communities, uh, whether it's in the South Asian, uh, Southeast Asian, East Asian, there's, there's a lot of various differences and also historical conflicts between uh, within these communities that I think about how often it's very hard to uh, have the Japanese and the Korean American community coalesce together uh, to work um, to work together on the greater API issues in America uh, but at the same time the historical distrust uh, for years or actually given its history going into centuries, uh, it's hard to break, right? I mean, you, you're working with within these communities that 
have a natural distrust for one another. So how does one try to navigate as you were, I know you were just alluding to it, but how does one try to navigate to these discussions and working with uh, both community leaders to, uh, to focus on the commonalities, the shared struggles that those communities have being in America. And it's one thing to also talk about within these communities, but also let alone working with other uh, Latino, Latinx, and Black communities as well. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, it's, it's really interesting you bring, you bring this up because I, I was recently at a meeting with, um, with a group of, of Japanese Americans who are working on a series of events for, uh, for calendar year 2020. And one of the things that was brought up was addressing this, um, this sort of Japanese colonial history that, that oftentimes kind of finds its way into, uh, into coalition building moments with, uh, when organizing with, uh, with Japanese communities and, and I'll be honest with you, it's not something that, and this, this is obviously of course, very much on me, but it's not something that I thought very much about and, you know, being fourth generation Japanese American. And I think when I, when I think about organizing with other folks who are Japanese there, and particularly around the camp, the camp experience, they're also third generation, fourth generation, maybe even fifth generation, where their great grandparents were immigrants to the United States. And part of our shared history is our great grandparents and our grandparents not wanting anything to do with Japan, right? Like yeah. my my grandmother didn't speak Japanese to my my mother and her siblings, right? I didn't go to Japanese school growing up. Um, I have multiple, I, I have an uncle who doesn't like Japanese food, right? So it's it's very much like, yeah. like you know, because of that experience and that that trauma of of uh, of internment, like really, not only internment, it's internment and then and then moving somewhere where there are no Japanese people and being told not to engage with other Japanese people, right? Yeah, because I've noticed that too. That was something that I've you know learned because you don't see a Japanese town the way you do with Korean town or little vietnam or any of the or chinatown for that matter um and you see the effects of the incarceration the internment camp era and how that has forever changed the japanese american communities and how they engage with one another it's it's quite telling and i'm glad that you you know uh brought that perspective into the surface yeah and and i think i'm it is definitely something that uh you know we as a group want to interrogate a little more and and when we talk about um you know these processes of uh uh decolonization right uh, sometimes i think that's that's 
turned into a bit of a buzzword. But I, I think in this, I think in in a lot of cases, you know, it's it's really true, you know. And I I think de-imperialize my my thoughts about about Japan. I mean, I just don't know. I just don't know much about it. And the reality is that yes, it does. It does. Um, you know, prevent us, prevent our community from from organizing and being true and being true co-strugglers now today, right? Um, and and uh, you know, I I I plead ignorance on a lot of that, uh, and and I I want to do more and better myself around that as an issue. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for um, you know engaging in that conversation because I, I think it's very important to like to talk about the nuances in these communities and talk about those divisions not just with other neighboring communities but also within our own and how the history especially of trauma can really be divisive I mean from my own family members the Vietnamese and Cambodian community have there's a lot of distrust among our own communities because our countries were mired in a civil war and when there's a civil war against your own neighbors, it's hard, I mean, to see who's on what side and uh, how it affects people's political beliefs or how they view their own uh, folks. So yeah, no, thanks for uh, engaging in that discussion, uh, which also- And I'll say, I'll say this too, like one of the, one of the things uh, you know, organize, organizing across communities and being in a lot of conversations with uh, folks who are more recent immigrants, who are first-generation immigrants themselves, you know, the, the top issues and the top uh, things that really get them galvanized around politics are homeland political issues. You know, it's not, it's not necessarily something that's happening in the United States, right? And it is certainly something that the United States is involved with on a global scale, right? Um, but I would say that, you know, the our Asian uh, Asian communities are inherently global, right? That's the nature of a a diaspora. It's the nature of centuries of forced of forced migration, right? And I think that, um, you know, I. Uh, you know, personally for me, I haven't always been the best at kind of balancing the, the global and the here at home of these issues, but it it really, like, it's something that, that needs to be a priority for, uh, for all immigrant communities, honestly. Mm. Yeah, and also touching on uh, your organizing work, a lot of times when you are in these movements, um, especially when uh, when there's a not, when there's a certain amount of urgency that needs uh, that when there's a certain amount of urgency that needs to uh, be paid attention to, um, and also with policies, executive orders, uh, and what have you, what keeps you and many activists to continue when you're dealt with losses in the movement? Such as legislation uh, passing, uh, such as legislation uh, that comes to affect our communities, or the loss of an innocent person due to police violence or hate crime. Uh, how do you work through 
these losses and tragedies, especially when you work so hard for months, weeks, days on end uh, to push for immigration reform, for example. I would say going back to 2013, uh, which uh, I was a part of in the immigration movement through KRCC, and we were trying to push collectively on the immigration reform bill, even though it wasn't necessarily popular <clears throat> among other undocumented activists, and rightfully so. Um, it passed the, uh, uh, the Democratic-led Senate at the time under Obama, but it never got to the House uh, because it was also uh, led by the Republicans. So the bill stalled at the doorsteps of the House. So giving that example, how do you try to, uh, to, to go back to the drawing board and deal with these, again, these issues and the fact that more of our community members are in danger? How do you try to move to help galvanize uh, folks to continue moving forward and fighting? Yeah. You know, ultimately, it's it's not necessarily about the wins because I, I think wins can kind of happen. Wins can kind of happen anywhere. And um, I think the thing is, depending on who's in power, wins can be undone very quickly as well. I think that I think that ultimately, you know, it's it's less about it's it's less about a win and more about the community that you build, right? I don't want this to seem like that. Uh, you know, you know that that meme or that saying, like. Uh, this was all, it was all the friends we made along the way, right? Absolutely. Like, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, like, I don't want to say, I don't want to, I don't say that in like a joking way. Oh, it was, it, it wasn't the win. It was the community that we built along the way. But I think there's some truth to it. Like, you know, you're, you're more, you're more powerful when you, when you come out the other end of something with, with a victory, maybe, but, but if you're, if you're really truly building the the right relationships in the process and and relationships where you're where you're really truly in it together, like that is power, right? That is community. And that's gonna that's gonna withstand legislative losses, right? That's gonna withstand legislative setbacks. Yeah. You know, some of the things that we that we learned early on in the Trump administration was that there are wins to be had and campaigns to be run and communities to be built on the local level. And whether that's with whether that's with strengthening local welcoming city ordinances or sanctuary city ordinances or passing legislation on the state level, you know, there are things that localities and states can do to kind of counter the the federal administration, right? And you know, I at the same time I understand that I can say that for Illinois, but I can't say that for Georgia, right? Like I, I couldn't say that for Georgia where where bad stuff is happening at the state level all the time, you know? And so so it 
it's really, in many ways, it's, it's dependent on your geography, you know? But in Illinois, in Illinois and in Chicago, like we've been able to build such a strong community to, yes, to win things, but I think the community is gonna, here is some visioning. The, the community is what's gonna outlast any sort of structure that, and any sort of system that's defined by wins and losses. And the politicians too, that are in office. Yeah, yeah, and any, and any office that a politician holds. The community is gonna live on beyond that. So- Yeah, um, right on, right on on that, because uh, when you talk about the wins and losses, but also the building of community that comes out of it, the friendships, like- The friends I, we made, yeah. Say that the friends we made along the way. Anyway, sorry. The friends that we no no absolutely. Uh, thank you for sharing that because looking back on my time, like I was only with KRCC for like about a year, and I was gone in summer of two thousand thirteen. But my gosh, the friendships that I've gained out of that whole movement in a short amount of time, uh, might I add. I met you along the way. I you know, I've met a number of great folks. I was with the organiz I was with this group called I2I, which is an Asian LGBTQ plus group. Uh, then I got involved with storytelling. So in the Cambodian Museum and what have you. And looking back, it is true because the friendships that we gain along the way, uh, it's not just the friendships that are important. And trust me, I, I don't want to devalue it by any means, but the collaborations that come out of it, the groups that start to emerge, uh, the opportunities to take on different uh, leadership roles start to surface because of these movements, right? Mm -hmm. There's more, and and there's, and from you know young organizers to you know being professional, um, to being, uh, to working in professional settings. You also have a little bit more income to donate. Uh, well, not everyone has the access to do it, but but there are folks that have the uh, the access to donate to uh, grassroots organizations. So those keep moments in these movements do build long-lasting relationships, mm -hmm. and they start to sustain communities. So yeah, that that is a very powerful point that you bring up, and I think that's the way to look at when you're dealing with. The devastating losses in our community and at the same time you know we've also have to think about how far we've progressed in some way locally nationally federally and that even then it's not permanent it still needs to be fought time and time again even though there's been some victories of 23 years ago that can be erased tomorrow, um, it, the fight never the fight is never over, right? And um, but the relationships are meant to stay for the long term, and we are seeing that. And it's something that I've been very fortunate to have witnessed and to be a part of. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, so I wanted to also bring up. Um, just recently, Asians American Advancing Justice in the LA uh, location, they recently laid off 19 staff members. And it was due to what they call the budget windfall, as I'm you know doing my air quotes here. 
and there was also talks of the union uh, of you know i think they were already unionized by that point and then union talks between uh advancing justice and the staff broke down and it also led to their dismissal i i don't want to end up you know putting in false facts into the air here so correct me if i'm you know uh, going in the wrong direction so the purpose of having this discussion is to not you know make light or gossip about advancing justice but to but it also brings concern because advancing justice especially in la for a very large api community it's very concerning because we're heading into 2020 which is a census year it's also the election not just the presidential election but local elections um, and registering new api voters and, and and providing language access to elderly folks or um, non-native english speakers who want to participate in the electoral process, right? Uh, so that is a big concern because Advancing Justice has been leading a lot of this work, um, if I'm not mistaken, and have been the umbrella for a lot of API organizations. Um, so with that said, uh, in addition to the 19 staff members that uh, were laid off, three of them in the leadership role had resigned in solidarity of those that were laid off. So, I know that you can't speak on, you know, behalf of being an advancing justice, but I wanted to get your take on this and how do you feel like this affects uh, the API movement on a national, local level with something like this? Because to me, it's concerning. I mean, to me, I'm very uh, worried about what this will do for the LA community, which is again, a very large community. So I wanted to get your perspective on that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I want to lift up the folks who were laid off by LA because some of those, some of those staffers are people who I work with directly and who have been working at LA for a really long time. And many of them, Many of them are from the communities that they're serving. So like, I don't want that to be, like, I don't want that to be overlooked, right? Not only, not only are they downsizing in a significant way, they're also, you know, parting ways and firing, I'll, I'll say, I'll use that word, the, a lot of the people who come from the communities that they're saying they're trying to lift up. And that is, that makes it, um, you know, it compounds the degree to which it's troubling. I mean, I, I think that more than anything, it brings up a, a nature of the reality for, for many nonprofit employees. You know, folks working nonprofit aren't in the field for the money, right? Like there is nobody in nonprofit gets paid particularly super well, right? Unless um, unless you are the, the executive director of a really large organization, but then even then we should be talking about why your organization has gotten so big. <laughs> um, I, I, would, I would say that with, with organizations, even the size of Advancing Justice LA, 
you know, it's like it's a wake up call for for nonprofit staff, and it's a moment for nonprofit staff to get together and say, hey, look, like we, you know, we need to be unified as service providing staff, as as coordinator and and lower manager level staff to to come together and and really you know pr protect each other right and and i think that for for uh organizations in the api movement you know it's something you're seeing right like napoff recently announced publicly that they are that they're unionizing and are negotiating a contract um you see api leaders uh who are who are starting uh, pushes for who are starting organizing pushes for unions at uh, at organizations that aren't API focused. I'm thinking about uh, Food and Water Watch, which recently also announced that they are unionizing. And I think it's 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 a galvanizing moment, right? Like nobody wants to see anybody get laid off, right? And nobody. Right. And nobody wants to see an organization's impact. It really is the impact. Nobody wants to see an organization's impact downsized in such a way when, especially when you're talking about communities that you're a part of, right? Like any, anyone who's undocumented, anyone who, uh, who had to learn English, anyone who's who has used Advancing Justice LA for any of their services, like many of those programs are cut and they're gone. Yeah. Because because our staff no longer works there, and we're all we're all sort of driven to work for these mission focused organizations, you know, because we have a connection with the mission, we because we have a connection with the communities that we're serving, and I think that, um, you know, I think it's it's a wake up call that no matter how much we love the organization and no matter how much we put into it, like, you know, we're we're not safe from those types of cutbacks you know we're not safe from being um from being told that the organization is going in a different direction and um and you know i i know that uh, several of the the staff from advancing justice la have landed on their feet i know that you know others are are you know going through going through some more challenging times so um, you know, Sending all my good energy to them, uh, and also, you know, all of my support to, to all the other unionization efforts that are popping up around around nonprofits. Like, you, if you are looking for a job with a nonprofit, you should see if they have a union, and if they don't have a union, like, you should talk to somebody, some of the the staff who are on your level. Yeah, and. I think those are very important conversations to have because, you know, from nonprofit, what does get overlooked is you don't get paid very well for this job. We do it, be, not just, we don't do it for the love of the money here. We do it for the love of helping our community, the causes that we are very much connected to and that there's a history in the, in, in the movement that they're championing for, right? Uh, we also think about how often the nonprofit work can be ridiculously 
laborious. I mean, you are not just working a typical 40-hour work week. I mean, without the union, you're working 60 to 80 hours without overtime. Mm-hmm. And I have seen, and I'm not going to name organizations, but I have seen a friend of mine who is undocumented work full-time hours as a part-time person without any benefits. And he was being paraded around as the... Um, the uh, poster child of the undocumented movement for their organization, which is highly, highly problematic. I couldn't find a better politically correct word for that, but it's it, it's it's very galling to me when you do see um, certain nonprofits do take advantage of of staff members, interns, and even volunteers to spend so much time and not just the hours, but you know, doing so, going to events, not getting compensated, you know, for the gas. Uh, I'm not going to say this for all nonprofits because that's not always the case, but there, there are some that do take advantage mm-hmm. of the labor of staff members, especially those who are most vulnerable. And most vulnerable meaning, you know, POC folks, um, people who are queer, trans, undocumented, um, uh, people who have visas who don't have the um, who don't have citizenship privilege right so looking back on all of it I, I do think it's important to have that conversation started right uh, but to also bring that to the surface and to hold our hold management accountable for better working conditions for um, for staff members so that they can thrive and that they are able to help their community members in a more effective manner without burning them out um, every couple of months. So, yeah. So with that said, um, the topic of self-care, I know that you have since um, taken uh, a hiatus from advancing justice or you have stepped down from advancing justice to, you know, take a hiatus. But during your time in nonprofit overall, what has the process of self-care looked like for you during those times? Yeah, yeah. You know, it it um, it varies. You know, I, I think the thing that I that I come back to is that um, you know, it's it's not always the easiest thing to to make time for yourself, <laughs> and. Um, and I, I, I don't know that I've always been, been the best at, at doing that. Um, but I, I think the things that I come back to are, you know, spending time with my family, um, spending time with my wife and my dog, my mom, you know. Um, I've, I've been going, I, I go to therapy, right? That, that is a very, uh, that is a great way for me to, you know, talk about talk about things and I can just throw anything out there and let it and have it be the topic of conversation for 55 minutes and and uh, and they my therapist will roll with it um, I think uh, you know for me it's it's making sure I, I have time to pursue the things that I like that are directly connected to work so uh, maybe that's baseball, uh, watching baseball, reading about baseball. Maybe that is um, watching Star Wars. You know, stuff like that. And 
that those are those are kind of things that I, I really like that I fall back on. But I I think the thing about the thing about self care and the thing about kind of relaxing and restful time that I'm trying to come back to is you know is knowing for yourself when you are resting and knowing for yourself when you are like not physically moving but your mind is churning all of these thoughts about work does that make sense like yeah, it does. like i i certainly had so many moments where you know i might be laying on the couch but the only thing that's going through my head is all of the things i have to do when i get up you know and it's, it's kind of like a a paralysis sort of thing but i so i what i really want to be mindful of is you know knowing when i'm at rest and being okay with being at rest and being okay with resting and doing things for myself versus not physically doing anything but thinking about the things that i have to do yeah, I, I feel like I'm I fall into the mistakes. Oh yeah, I fall. I I feel like I'm very restless most of the time because yeah, I may be resting, but my mind is still churning. I'm thinking about uh, a million other things I got to take care of the rest of the week, even as I'm resting. Uh, but yeah, it's just um, I think like the idea of self care is very undervalued in nonprofit, right? Uh, because we're so conditioned. Uh, to be prepared for emergencies that could happen. Um, the fact that you can be on your lunch break, that you get a text message, and, right? Yeah, and orgs are, are pretty understaffed, right? Like, yes, they're understaffed and you're working multiple positions. You could be doing outreach, admin work. Uh, you could also be, um, you know, giving out a press conference in like in less than two hours uh, because because or you're asked to write a press release like like immediately like you could be doing a million other things but there's certain things that just come at you um, that need more urgent attention right right yeah so yeah I want to say thank you so much for you know sharing your wealth of experience you know being a nonprofit and and I really sincerely hope uh, you you know, find the kind of work that works best for you and on your needs. And I think that, that, you know, being around you for the last couple of years, I've been very enamored and just really moved by your passion for this work and the dedication that you've spent uh, with the API community in Chicago and also outside of it. I mean, you've forged so many great relationships here. I'm, you are well loved. I just want to let you know that you're very well loved in our community and as much as we miss your uh doing seeing you do this particular work at the same time you know we're also happy and eager to see what will await for you in the next uh journey because everything is everything is a transition in our journey right so um everything's a build up from the last um from the last place that we were at so I want to say that I've been very proud of the growth that you have shown in that during that movement, but also what you've taught us. So really wanted to make sure that you're 
uh, that you are heard and that we're looking forward to seeing what wonderful work that you have in store for us because you know you've you've really been uh, amazing and I think that maybe the last question I'm thinking of is well what would you say to someone a young 20 something year old uh, person who's very passionate about organizing what would you say to that person I would tell them well honestly like I would tell them to embrace their passion right and if their passion is organizing I would tell them to embrace it right like I think that is that is still so much of what drives the um, it's a lot of what drives the uh, like the paid social movement work you know like there's there's paid social movement work and then there is like the there is of course a lot of unpaid social movement work, right? Yeah. And your your passion and your skills, like that that can get you into some really awesome, you know, paid social movement gigs. I I, I think that I think that um, you know, know what you want to know what you want to accomplish, whether it's whether it's for yourself or for your movement, for your community, um, and and let that drive you. Um, but know your boundaries too, and I think uh, I think uh, you know I I didn't always know my boundaries. I didn't always have the best sense of them, and uh, you know it, it 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 always takes some time to figure these things out. You know it always takes time to figure out what you want to accomplish and and what you and the change you want to make, and also the the boundaries that you need to have in order to. Uh, be the person who carries that out. So, embrace your embrace your passion, and em embrace the the change that you want to make in the world. But set boundaries while you're while you're doing it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, so I think well said. Yeah, I'm well said there. You know, thank you, my friend. And I think you can also safely um, uh, emerge from. Uh, black jacket that you're hiding under. So <laughs> I hope that you can breathe now. No, I can't. Thank you, Randy. Thank you, Randy. Thank you. Yeah. Randy. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, this was a lot of fun, and you know, thank you again. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll keep uh, an eye on you and uh, and uh, see what wonderful things are emerging uh, from the life of Brandon Lee. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Randy. All right. Have a good one. Take care. Take care. Bye bye. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunby Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at bunby underscore chronicles. 
Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you. Thank you.